Whatever it is you stop doing is the thing you will be screwing. What? That doesn't make any sense, but you know that none of my introductory sentences make sense. So hello, it's Baron Vaughn, and welcome to Deep Shit. Um, Guys, it is a day after, or two days after, my Comedy Central half hour premiered. It was Friday night at midnight. Thank you to anyone who watched. I'm not exactly sure if I promoted it on the last podcast. I should have because it's been nonstop on my mind. Comedy Central was up my ass about tweeting about the stuff. No, okay, not really up my ass. I, I'm, I maybe I created the pressure on it, but I did a lot of retweeting and a lot of promoting, and I just felt like this week was a very, this last week was very uh, self promotion heavy on Twitter for me because I did a shitload of shows. I overdid it. And uh, then I had a fucking Comedy Central half hour special. It went really well. And uh, I had a lot of good feedback. A um, couple haters. Not as many haters as I was expecting. Uh, I got one hater that was like, uh, you should quit comedy because you're the only joke. Not bad joke structure to that insult. And then uh, two other people said, you're awful. But they both spelled it Y-O-U-R. I don't know what it is about not being able to read or spell or know anything about grammar that makes a motherfucker hate motherfuckers, but that motherfucker is stupid. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, today's guest right now on this podcast is Hassan Minaj. I just sat down with Hassan. Uh, I just did a uh, back-to-back Hassan Minaj and Cameron Esposito podcasts. Hopefully, I'll put the Cameron Esposito podcast up later this week. Um, I know I said I would go twice a week, which I still want to do. It's just a situation in terms of changing the podcast RSS feed on iTunes from Libsyn to SoundCloud. It is cray-cray holiday. Um, I thought it would be something simple where I could go into iTunes, find where that link is, and then replace it. But no, there's a whole freaking complicated process that I have to uh, reach out to Katie Levine, uh, my old producer, to solve And we're in the midst of doing that. So if I get that solved by Thursday, there will be another podcast Thursday. Otherwise, I will save Cameron until next week. But right now, you're going to hear the dulcet tones of Hassan Minaj. So I don't want to do too much much, uh, fanfare about what's going to happen here. But Hassan uh, got involved with an insanely cool project um, uh, where he got involved with the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation and was able to take his stand-up to India and South Africa and hung out with Indian comedians when he was in India and South African comedians when he was there uh, and got to know them and got to talk to them about their lives and their processes, which all culminated in a legendary meeting where he took these comedians to that I am envious of uh, because it sounds like one of the most incredible things that could ever happen to a comedian. Um, and uh, he says some really good shit here that's really inspiring and shit that I need to fucking remember. I need to remember hardcore. Of course, after he left and I talked to Cameron, I kind of unleashed and let out some of this other anxiety that I was holding in that I wanted to put up as evidence against what it is that Hassan was revealing to me. He learned in this podcast what it is that he learned that he reveals in this podcast. And so with Cameron, it was a little bit more back to that place, but that's fine. 
I need to know that I'm in that place. So, you know, I need to know where it is that I'm standing in order to walk away from it. Don't matter. It don't matter. It don't matter. Um, All Things Comedy Network, go guys, go to the All Things Comedy Network website uh, and listen to some of the other great podcasts that they got going on, you know, like Bill Burr's Monday Morning Podcast, Walking the Room, Comedy Film Nerd, The Dork Forest, Jake This, Tom Rhodes Radio, uh, The Skeptic Tank, uh, The Champs. Guys, just plenty of things to choose from over thing over there at the All Things Comedy Network. Uh, and my podcast, of course, Deep Shit, is there. And please leave nice comments and reviews and whatnot. Don't be a hater. Be a, be a player. <laughs> and uh, on iTunes and shit, and listen to me and tell your friends, and I don't know what else to say. Um, oh, yeah, I also uh, had an appearance on... Uh, if you want to hear more at length about my financial bullshit, you've already heard a lot about it, you guys. Uh and I apologize for talking about it so much, but obviously it's what's happening. It's on my mind, and I don't really have a plan um, because I a plan involves – my plan is to make some money, but as long as there's no real way for that to happen in the immediate, I just kind of have to sit here and wait for the times that I am going to make money. Speaking of which, I'll be at Stand Up Scottsdale in the beginning of August as well as Crackers in indianapolis let me get those dates for you guys stand up scottsdale is going to be august first through third one two three it's a thursday friday and saturday and i will be there with frequent podcast podcast guest and good friend ryan singer it's gonna be me and him at at stand up scottsdale if you are near that and then um august 7th through 10th i will be in indianapolis at crackers and then we go to south korea that's a whole different story, and I will podcast from South Korea. I'm hoping to have some sort of spiritual moment there, some sort of awakening. We'll see what happens. Because in South Korea, you know what they got? They got soul. It's super bad. Oh, I auditioned for the James Brown movie. That was weird. Anyway, here's a Samanaj. Okay, so, yeah, there's actually certain philosophical questions that arise in it. So, anyways, I wanted to tell you the story mm-hmm. about this project that I undertook. And thanks, thanks to the conversations that we've been having, I decided to take said project. What was the conversation again? It was just... I about, know it. I just went through listeners. It was <laughs> on one of the last podcasts that we had. We just had... Basically, the, the gist that I took away from it was just like, don't beat yourself up for whatever, but follow your heart, follow your instincts, take these chances, these things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. What, no matter what they lead to, they're, uh, they're leading to g- more artistic expression and creation on your part, which is a gift in and of itself. Right. Irrespective of any IMDb credit you get from it. Right, right. Sorry to use the, the uh, Hollywood jargon there, but that's like what – do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the – Someone at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had seen some of my stand-up, where I, which we did at Holy Fuck together, where yes. I talk about how like my my family immigrated here, how I was here, how I eventually which met the my Holy sister. Fuck, uh, the Holy Fuck album is out. Oh yeah, yeah, um, go buy that album. You yeah. so if you have picked that up or want to pick it up, there's a section uh-huh. of Hassan Minaj's set talking about this stuff. Yeah. they cut everyone's set down a lot. Oh, did they? I was surprised. Like there's like people's sets are like two, three minutes long. Yeah. And I was like, the way that you began that set, uh-huh. I was like into it. 
but they uh-huh. kind of cut the beginning of it out. Yeah. They they go to the stuff about your sister. Yeah. But I completely understand that word there. I understand yeah. it as well, but it's good stuff. Anyway, you're saying. I interrupted. So they they someone there had seen it at one of the shows. The stand-up is about India. Yeah. About your father coming over to the United States yeah, from yeah. India and your relationship with India and your family that's in India. Yes. Okay. So basically, uh, my family is from this village in India called Aligarh, which is right outside of Delhi. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of like to give you an American reference, it'd be like being from the middle of Ohio, just like middle okay. of nowhere. He's the only person to make it out from that village and to make it out all the way to the States. And mm. our family is whatever cre- our family is created in the process. He he's, he's married my mom. They've conceived me. They've had me. They're going back and forth. Mm. He's going back and forth. I, but I was lucky enough to be born in the United States, once again, I, I feel like I've won the world lottery. I mean, right. just being born here and having that citizenship is blessing. So mom is in India. Dad's over here. I was born here. So you were born here and your mom had to go back to India. I had to go back. So I'm, we're going back and forth. And I feel for the guy. Now that I'm older, I get what he was going through. He had just married this woman. Like, mm-hmm. they're starting their life. And then it's like, psych. She's got to go back. How old was he? He was 31. How old are you? 27. Yeah, I'm 32. So your dad is a year younger than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. At this point, and okay. I, I like, I just remember when I was a little kid, and I'm because I, I, I was just raised by my, by my dad, uh, for the first big chunk of my life. I remember being like just always mad, like at shit. But I understand where he was coming from because it's like, he's like, I'm the only brown person on my job. People make fun of the way I talk. I have no friends. I thought about it now. I was like, yeah, he really didn't have a lot of friends. He tried. I remember like he would try, but like. And I'm like, and then he's he's like, I got a kid. I have this wife that I'm trying to bring over here. It's just like a hard situation. A lot of stuff going on. Yeah, right? just like I could see how it's just like, ah, you know, fr- just frustration. So anyways, um, he's going back and forth. He knocks on my mom. I have a sister. They don't tell me about her because they didn't want me to be sad because I was like an only child, you right. know, and I'm just with my dad. And one of the big running themes of when I was a kid was like, when is mom going to get here? When is, when are we going to be a family? Like, mm. do you get what I, you, you know what and I mean? You were asking that question. I or? was asking that stuff. Okay, right. And it's always, because it's always like, don't worry, kiddo. We're in chapter one, but I'm like, no, no, no. I want to get to act two. Like right, what happens right. in chapter eight when like, I want to get to the happy ending. And so they just, they were like, we didn't want to tell you uh, and stuff like that. And then I finally met my sister and everybody was able to come over when I was eight. So, you know what I mean? She had eight peace years by peace in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. with yeah. no discernible mother and sister. I would see my mom every once in a while. Every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she would visit. Yeah, have she to would go visit. Back. Have to go back. Um, and then she was, uh, she found she was able to do her residency in New York. Mm. Still, I'm in California. She's in New York, so we don't get to see each other that much. But uh, it was, uh, and then and your sister was born in New York. My sister was born, yeah, in, in New York. Okay. So like she she became a citizen, but once again it was one of those things where my mom was on rotations. My dad lives in California; he has a kid. So in in Indian tradition, grandparents help. It's like a the nuclear family helps raise the child. So my grandparents were like, send her back to the village; we'll raise her there. Mm. So a lot of the what's so what's so interesting to see is like the lens through which I see the world and my sister see the, sees the world is very different. Right, like the the way I see it is like these things can be taken away from you. You never like it's, it's so hard fought to have these things. And she comes from a natural place of like, everything will be okay. People love me. It's fine because she, from the get go, 
had she, that. Yeah, she had like nine people around her. My she had infrastructure. Yeah, infrastructure. People, cousins, uncles, aunts. Like the house was this. Even though uh, even though it was a small house, the village. You're surrounded by people. Yeah, the village literally raised this baby. So it's like her. The way she sees like you know elementary school. All these things were very terrifying for me. And for her, the rules had already been laid out. You have a younger sibling, right? I'm very much, much, much younger. They're 13 years younger than I am. The the lens through which they see the world is it far different than yours? I mean, it is and it isn't. There's there's subtle things that they have that I didn't have. Uh-huh. For instance, a dad. That's a big thing. <laughs> right. Um, a house. Right. They grew up in a house. I grew up in apartments. Right. So it's like I I am not used to the idea of neighbors and that we're cool with our neighbors even though i lived in an apartment complex and there are literally people right across from you and above you uh-huh. we didn't really know each other yeah i became friends luckily with the last apartment i lived in in vegas before i moved before i graduated high school and stuff the guy who lived upstairs from me jose we uh-huh. became friends because he was close to my age he was like a year or two younger than me uh-huh. And he had a PlayStation, coolest kid in the world. To me. Oh, oh, that when it first the came first out, PlayStation. Are you serious? I didn't even get to freaking play, man. I just watched him play Resident Evil all the damn time. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So he didn't even let you play. No, no. I I was happy to have the have the privilege just to, watch. to watch. That's just to <laughs> just to learn. That's not a friend, dude. Well. <laughs> Hey, do you want to just like put your eyes on my screen while I play? Exactly. And he was so focused on it. And I was like, when he beats this game, I'm going to be able to play. But I'm going to know how to beat the game from watching him play. Yeah, yeah. And I don't even remember if that ever happened. Those were great games. They were great games. But back to your point, they have a very different... I've been, I've been reading a lot about millennials and, and stuff. So they have a very different uh, life expectations. Their, their expectations are higher uh-huh. than mine. I'm, I'm more Gen X, which is more anxiety and ennui. And what's the point, bro? You know, <laughs> right, right. and they're more just like, I'm going to be a rock star and a singer and a novelist. Right, right. And then just immense disappointment. Right. And photographing fucking everything. everything. It's the difference between the generation of I'm going places to take photographs to show you I've been places mm-hmm. and taking photographs of myself in front of the place. Mm-hmm. As if the Great Wall of China doesn't exist unless you see my face in front of it. Right. And really the majority of the picture, 80% of the picture is just my fat face. Right. And you barely see the Great Wall of China right, right, behind right, it. Right. So that's kind of, I, as I see it, uh-huh. what they look to life for. Uh-huh. But they're also, the their family unit is way more, like, as as dysfunctional as my family can be, they are together. My mom, my stepdad, and my little sisters. Uh-huh. And they had a, a really close relationship with my grandmother before she passed away. And they have a close relationship with their other grandmother, my step-grandmother. Uh-huh. But I didn't have that. It was me, my mom, and my grandma. Right. My stepdad came in way late in my life. I uh-huh. was like 11 or 12. But your grandmother was incredibly influential on your life. My grandmother, yes. We shared a fucking room. Like yeah. We had a bunk bed. Dude, I sl- that's, how my, that's what my relationship with my grandmother was. So my dad couldn't. My mom was finishing med school, so my grandmother lived with us for some time. Mm. And grandfather came just to take care of me to, because I was a latchkey kid for got a little something right there. I was a latchkey kid for some time. You got it. Um, I think no, you didn't. That doesn't matter. Keep going. Okay, so I they were like, we can't. This kid is like, and I would get sometimes get into trouble, and they're like, we need someone to. I like, was latchkey too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so um, I didn't realize like now I realize like they gave me so many fundamental like life lessons Mm -hmm. just basic like make your bed like just like rules structure Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like here's oliver twist read it oh really do you know what i mean oh yeah because the british came over and they gave them all those they know all those stories right yeah 
So just but like the themes and the morals in the stories that exactly found, yeah, found yeah. important. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Figure this, figure this shit out. Yeah, and I'm like, what? And they were like, no, read it. You know, hmm. it was it was really important in my life. But um, so anyways, they uh, get someone at Gates Foundation had seen me tell all this material or whatever, and they're like, look, we're, we, the Ga- Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are funding initiatives around the world. Uh, in each respective country, they have different initiatives. In India, it is to reinvent the toilet. He's put up all this money to be like, hey, entrepreneurs, why don't you create something that creates huge, massive social change? So instead of making Angry Birds 2, why don't you reinvent the toilet using a waterless toilet model that can affect the world and you'll still make tons of money? Social change plus capitalism. That's his MO. Right. Which I'm like, that's really awesome. Because there's this past four or five years has been this like, you know, Facebook, Instagram, let me create my own web 2.0 company, very, sell it. Which is a very millennial thing. It's just like self-made. I'm doing it. I'm going straight to the top. Right, right. I'm going to make this app. I'm going to make this website. Right, I'm right. going to blog about this thing, become a YouTube sensation, stuff right, like that. Right, so right. it's very self-realizing, self-realizing mm-hmm. generation. But, but you're saying that he's doing that with the heart, like, like – Hardcore infrastructure type ish. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Insta- you can't compare Henry Ford and the guy who created Instagram. No, I created what filters for photos versus like I yeah you know the way the world travels around mm-hmm. domestically. I made that. You know what I mean? Aeroplanes, uh, fucking uh, copper wire, the internet, things like that. Where you're like this in a tangible hard way changes things. And I I feel like the next wave of things that's going to happen here in the states is healthcare. Because, like, hospitals still, catheters, things are still kind of antiquated. There hasn't been major, do you know what I mean, super, Well, super and then we're, and we're with, with the whole Obamacare thing, right. people are really holding on to how it has been. Right. Because we've built the business on top of that model. Sure. And people do not want to get rid of that model. Sure, sure, because sure. Because they have to, what, rethink the way they do everything? Exactly. That's going to take three, four days <laughs> right right. i don't have time for that i could be making money right 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 so it's like that's where i feel like the next wave of th- things is going but B- bill gates the way he feels is like, i think is th- this millennial generation does not find innovation in that regard to be dope or cool mm-hmm. or interesting because it has nothing to do with you yeah it, it's like I'm you don't more- become popular off it exactly you, you unfortunately you don't you know um and it's still it's sexier or cooler to be like an Elon Musk who's creating Tesla, the electric car, or SpaceX, which is going to let people go to space. Well, it's interesting, that you which bring is very up, cool. That you, you bring know? up Tesla, yeah, when you're talking about all this, because you know about Tesla, right? What the about guy? It? Oh, Elon Musk, Nikolai Tesla. Oh no, I don't know about that. Guy. Oh, Tesla is a fucking uh, mad, the mad a mad wizard, right? Now, if Edison was the wizard of Menlo Park, they called him. Uh huh. Tesla and Edison were around at the same time. Tesla died penniless, and broke. Oh, Whereas no. Edison, because Tesla basically, and and this is, and I kind of agree with you on on the fact that I think that the way that we take care of ourselves in a big way needs to be rethought and changed in a gigantic way. Uh-huh. And I feel like a lot of people are seeing more so than ever the error in a lot of the ideas that we've been banking on for like hundreds of years or a hundred years, really. Right. When it comes to like energy, when it comes to food and health. Uh-huh. And um, Tesla basically, in a way, because people are, are saying this about the Egyptians and stuff like that, because it's like, oh, the the the, the uh, pyramids are tombs, which is never – no one thinks that. Uh-huh. It's not true. There's no <laughs> evidence of that. Right. Some people are believing that the pyramids are, were energy sources. 
Uh-huh. And that electromagnetism is a real thing. It just exists. Uh-huh. So as opposed to it's, – it's, I think it was, it's called um, uh, explosion energy and implosion energy. Okay. Right? Explosion energy is the kind of energy that creates waste. Okay. Right, a combustible, en- a combustion engine. Right, burning creates, coal or whatever. Yeah, it creates waste. Yeah, implosion is renewable. Right, right. So the Egyptians may have had energy. They may have had electricity. Maybe I don't know. So um, Tesla, in a, in some ways, rediscovered what the Egyptians may have already known, uh-huh. which is the fact that energy exists around us. Uh-huh. All we have to do is focus it. Right. As opposed to it, it, it doesn't need to be created. It already is. Exists. Exists. Whereas yeah. Edison created the model where it's like, no, we're going to make it like this. We create this much of it so uh-huh. that we, we can charge this much for it. Right. And everybody kind of went to the Edison camp of we can put out the energy in limited capacity right, and, right. and make money right, off of it. Right. And Tesla was like, energy should be free. That was Electricity should be free because uh-huh. he's like, I didn't invent electricity. Right. It's already here. I just right. figured out how to tap but into it. But it was like, no, it's a commodity that you sell. Exactly. And trade. Exactly. Fascinating. And so it's interesting that Tesla's name is now yeah. linked to this car. That's, that's incredible. Slash a band. Right, right. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so what were we saying? So he was like, look, how do I make uh, – I want to make – kind of humanitarianism and philanthropy cool like in a real practical way so like he's like look the way sanitation and infrastructure is built in in this country it's a very first world luxury mm-hmm. that like you have an unlimited supply of water and mm-hmm. then you have like uh you have c- cities that are built upon city planning where there's like underground sewage and stuff like that what if your that stuff is made before buildings are even made. exactly yeah and he's like that's not how like places certain places in china or india or africa are unfortunately south america as well south america yeah. as well so he's like look what the, first of all water is like a limited commodity like it's not something that's just readily available but like you can run the tap all day here you need a waterless toilet it's very similar to like what they have at <laughs> whatever coachella or the airplane right so, <laughs> so, so okay so we're so, trying to we're trying to bring the toilets of coachella to the rest of the world basically okay. yeah, yeah, yeah and so but what's really cool is that he he put his money where his mouth is he's like here's a, a ton of money like if you can create a waterless toilet using a, a myriad of different ways it's up to you inventors um we will help we will help fund it so they were like i have this joke about how like in the village where my family's from they shit outside and in a hole yeah, yeah in a hole and there's comedians over there what's interesting is how in like how in america so in america we're ahead in, ter- in terms of the say toilet game but in terms of the cell phone game the way we're locked in these contracts is fucking bullshit but in um south america and in india you just pay a rupee per, you pay by the minute so people just dump cell phones like it's anything because it doesn't matter you just you pay for how much you use it and you're not locked into anything right so you'll see a homeless dude squatting over by the train tracks taking a dump swiping on a samsung galaxy wow you know what i mean and so this this comedian has this hilarious joke about how he saw like a homeless guy like just his app was freezing while he was taking a dump by the train tracks and um they i thought he was gonna shit himself (laughs) right they had this idea that they were like we should um much like very kind of similar to that um program called modern comedian let's follow the joke let's see like Let's show the story of these comics to show that jokes themselves aren't just contrived in joke books. They they come from reality. Right. So they were like, well, what a great narrative to follow you back to your home. We follow your joke back to Aligarh, back to where you're from. Wow. You meet this, these burgeoning comics that are doing comedy in Mumbai and um, Johannesburg, respectively. 
And you see, like, you, we see, like, it's Wait, Mumbai and Johannesburg? Yeah, so I went to India. They're incredibly far away from As each well other. as South <laughs> Africa. Yeah, yeah, Because the, the uh, Gates Foundation, has, their initiative in India is reinventing the toilet. Their initiative in South Africa is AIDS, AIDS and HIV awareness. Okay. So. In, a lot of stand-up in South Africa. ton. Because there's a lot of English speakers. Yeah. Stand-up has always been in, is it, it's an American art form. Yeah. So it's, like, barely starting to get into countries that aren't English speakers. Yeah. But continue. I'm sorry. Um. So uh, Johannesburg and Mumbai, right? Doing stand up, right? And so and so the Mumbai thing was, uh, so we go back there and we follow their jokes, and I got to see this like burgeoning um, scene that like English speaking stand up mm. in Mumbai. But what's, what's interesting is that they've had on, on stage performers and comedians for decades, right? Right. But it's it's Hindi because Hindi is the national language of India, right? And um, it's a lot of the jokes are very story based. Like if you were to translate them, they, a man walks in and sees a woman and da 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 da, and then right. he says, "That's what my wife says." Da da, right, right. And there's these stories, but then also what's old school story jokes? Yeah, but what was really cool to see is also is like old school slapstick is still really like, and um, you know, one of the big themes that I realized by do, doing stand up around the world and seeing different comedians add their own chapters to this book that we call modern comedy is that there's so much in America where it's like, we, we try to, we try to just say what our view is or what's right or what's wrong. And after traveling around the world, I'm like, no, I don't, I think it's less about that. I I just feel like it's our job to just say what is and not, uh, not be like, this is what's objectively right or wrong. Like, um, uh, like for example, um, I go to, I go to Johannesburg and in Johannesburg, I was terrified because on the cover of Time magazine, there was, gun, there was a gun saying how South Africa is one of the most dangerous places in the world right? because of the rampant guns. So everybody has pistols on them. I walked around while we were there filming. We walked around with like a bodyguard with a little pistol. And every, I, I felt freaked out. I was like, look, man, we're going into a mall. Like why? You know, and there's a metal detector in front of the mall. And the mall's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's like the Century City Mall. It's just like, oh, my God. This right. is amazing. But there's a metal detector here. I'm like, man, well, why is that? And he's like, well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll break it down. You know, there's still a disparity of wealth. There's the haves and the have-nots, and they're going to hold you up, but there's a motive. They're going to put a gun to you and say, look, I have no money. Give me your money or give me your car, and that's where the transaction ends. So right. I'm like, so you get shot in your car? And he's like, well, what about you guys? You can get shot in a movie theater. True, yeah. And I was like, oh, right. Like, once again, like, who ha- who really does have it figured out? Right, right. Because he's like, because I'm terrified to go to the states. I don't want to. I don't want my daughter to go to college and then she gets shot at college. Like, what's with well, that? because also getting shot in the movie theater in the United States, there's no ideology behind it. Exactly. This guy just wanted to shoot and hurt people for ostensibly no reason. Exactly. Whereas there, and that's why in America, I because I have. This fear of shot, getting shot and stabbed because of where I grew up. Because in the early 90s, right. when like everybody was talking about gangs all the time, just right. this constant fear of you're going to get shot just because just, they're angry. Right. And they didn't like the way you looked at them. Right. You stepped on their shoes. You're wearing the wrong colors. Right. You walked in the wrong neighborhood. Just 
simple things that you have no control over that right. the only ideology is that these people are angry these people black people young black people people i was being told i was this person right he's like he's young he's black he's angry and he's out to get you and i don't know why and i'm like that's everyone i know that's right. everyone i know right, right. Well, i gotta be suspicious of everyone i know right but crime in other countries is usually linked to i don't have anything you have something. Just give it to me. Just give it to me. And, and they don't want to hurt ends. you. Yeah, it, the transaction ends there. It's Les Miserables. <laughs> <laughs> this is the dumbest fucking thing I could say. But you know Les Mis. Jean Valjean, the whole reason he's in jail is because he stole bread to feed his family. Uh-huh. And they just were like, no, you're going to jail forever. Right. And he's like, I just stole bread. We were hungry. My, my, my sister's child was going to die. Right. No, no, you broke the law. 50 years in prison right. forever. So, what? So one thing I respect about that is, though, and that once again, the West comes and criticizes it, but it's like, I, in, a, in, a, in a weird we're way, we're so apt like, to call everyone else back. Yeah, yeah. I go, thing. well, at least it's in your face. Does that make sense? Corruption, mm-hmm. boom. Poverty, bam. Crime, bam. But the reasons are right there. But with our corruption, poverty, crime for our Bernie Madoffs in in Colorado's, there's so many whys. Why did this happen? How did this happen? What's the motive? Blah blah blah. And I, we still don't know. You know what I mean? In the wake of like what happened in Colorado, has that much changed since Bowling for Columbine? Like it's like I don't know. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like that was eleven years ago. Have have that many solutions come out, or is there a new reason why that guy lit up those people? No. You, you got to be a country privileged to have a serial killer. <laughs> right. 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 Um, another thing where I realized I was like, I I was I was bringing this American lens of like. Okay, let me just try to break it down. What's right and what's wrong here? Mm-hmm. So I interviewed uh, – what's really awesome about the comedians in Johannesburg specifically, um, and I, I wanted to talk to you about this, is that the wound of apartheid, that wound is very fresh. It was lifted in 94, and the first black comedian performing in South Africa was 96. Mm. So they've been performing there since like 96 to now. But what what blew my mind was like when they're on stage – how how well they're able to put the issues on the table. Right. They have three races there. They have blacks, they have um, Afrikaners, which are the white Dutch settlers, and then they have coloreds, which right. are... Col- mixed race. And they openly go, I'm colored. And they say they don't mean it in like... Yeah, not, no... not in the way that we mean it. Right, like, right. Not, right. not Alabama in the 50s colored. Right, right. It they means go, that you are mixed. Yeah, they go, my... Uh, do you know Trevor Noah? I know of Trevor Noah, yeah. but I don't Trevor know him personally. Noah is colored. Then yeah. people say, yeah, he's the colored comedian. And right. it's like not a. I've heard a lot about him. He was just on Letterman. Yeah, he's one of the biggest comedians in South Africa. He's huge. Um, but what was so refreshing and cool to see is like the comics up there. There was this comic from Soweto. Uh, his name is Umpo Pops. And he, Soweto was where the freedom movement really started and Mandela started from there. And he, right. grew, he grew up there, but he gets up there and he has these jokes where like he's up there and he's just like, hey man, y'all remember when they would drop the tear gas and you'd be walking home from school and that tear gas would come in and your mom would be like, cover your face. And it's crushing. It's right. crushing across the board. Whites, coloreds, and blacks are all laughing. That's, the, that's their version of uh, Eddie Murphy's ice cream bit. Yeah, we're just like you had ice cream. It's like this, <laughs> this is their childhood memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like you, know, you walk back. Yeah, yeah. Y'all remember? You guys remember that that tear gas, right? And your mom would be like, "Cover your face." So yeah, that's it. right. And they're like, "Ah!" And exactly. I'm like, "I'm like, holy shit!" But then I realized I was like, "Wait a second, we can't put the issues on the table like that with stand up in America. It's a very divided thing. Like you can talk about those issues, but you can only talk about them in certain groups in certain rooms. I that's what I feel." I, what I f- thought was so refreshing was to see 
Afrikaners dying and like just losing their minds over tear this, this tear gas material. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit, like ostensibly your parents were potentially a part of apartheid. Apartheid. Right. And, a part of the that, being your parents were oppressors. And that regime. <laughs> like ninety four was not that long ago. You were like nine or ten. Do you know what I mean? It's, right. it's like but their ability to just like, here it is, let's just talk about it. I felt was like so my the the script just kept on kept on getting flipped. Mm. Go, let's go to India, right? In India, I did their version of uh, WTF, which is it, it's a podcast called uh, India Buckshod, which is like uh, India talking shit. So it's like we're just two comics talking shit, and they were banned from iTunes because of they were bashing politicians and certain religious leaders. And in India, in India. So they actually have to deliver their podcast through SoundCloud and other kind of SoundCloud, a proud sponsor of the All Things Comedy Network. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And freedom of speech. SoundCloud. Go to SoundCloud.com. But what was – I was like, man, that's really fucked up, and that's like kind of a bad situation. But then um, I'll give you something like – or something else, though, that that I saw where I was like, wow, we could could learn something from them here. Um, In India – Straight men hold hands, like in terms of personal space. People of the same gender hold hands and they hug. And in in America, personal space is something that's very serious. Serious. We're very serious about it. Do not touch me emotionally, physically. Stay away. Like I have my things up. And over there, the love like people show, it's very genuine. And, and at first, like my guard was up, and I was like, wait. And then after a while, I was like, oh no, they're just coming from a place of love. Like India is. A very romantic country. The music, the culture, Bollywood, the songs, they're all love songs. They're all love stories, top to bottom. There's no, like, horror movie, Cabin in the Woods. There's no, like, everything is a love story. It's, even if it's a thriller, even if it's a whatever, it is a love story. It's a romantic place, and the people are romantic. And because of that, you know, like, when I get, went back, my cousin, you know, he just grabbed me, and he was kissing me, and he was holding my hands, and he's like, Come on, Hassan, let's go get ice cream. And I'm holding hands with my cousin. You know, we're gonna we're in an ice cream parlor, and um, he he showed me some girls. He's like, "Do you like the girls?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I like the girls." And we're holding hands. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's just like, "Hey, girl, this is my cousin. He's from U.S." And I'm like, "Oh, that's a great way to be the wingman, calling him girl." <laughs> hey, girl, and. Uh, <laughs> And the girl, like any woman with self-respect, was like, he's like, do you like him? And he's like, she's like, no. You know, and he's just like, fucking lesbians. And we walked out of the ice cream parlor holding hands. And I was like, (laughs) that's how advanced India is. Two straight men can go into an ice cream parlor holding hands, call a straight woman a lesbian, then walk out licking an ice cream cone. (laughs) Holding hands licking ice cream. That's incredible. It's. I was like, my mind was blown. All these, because in the states, it's there's there's. I feel there's these like strong lines. Hey, I'm straight, no homo. Da da da. I like Ryan Gosling, but hey, it stops here and all that shit. <laughs> Ryan Gosling's the exception, but otherwise but, uh, I'm, I'm straight. It's all these, yeah. And those lines were very blurred there. It's Victorian England, man. What does that mean? All the Victorians fucked us up, bro. Really? All of our all of our ideas are are we have very strong ideas that I think a lot of people think 
I have read uh-huh. that Victorian England, Victorian era England, one of the most oppressive societies. Right. Just in terms of like, keep your shit together. Right. right. We, we, we have those ideas. Uh-huh. 1950s America, post World War II, uh-huh. fucking super oppressive. Just like that, that sock hop era. Uh-huh. Everyone's going to the freaking, you know, McDonald's just opened or whatever. Right. right. Hey, Debbie, you want to go steady? But it's just kind of like <laughs> right, right, right. there was right. just such strong. Uh, and it's, po- it's post-Freudian as well, where just like such strong ideas of where things are supposed to be, uh-huh. how things are supposed to look. Uh-huh. You know, just like the idea of well-adjusted was invented by Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, who came really? here. She okay. came here after he died. Uh-huh. And she – the idea of if everything in your life is in place externally, uh-huh. it will be in place internally, right? Yeah. That's why we were like, yeah, white, white picket fence, Fans, 2.3 the, kids, right, right. wife, perfect life, right. perfect job, perfect house, perfect kids. Right, right. Perfect. Right. Everything's going to be perfect for me to feel perfect. Right. And we fucking are obsessed with that. Uh-huh. I mean, everybody has very clear, especially I think the younger generation has very clear ideas of my life is supposed to look like this, feel like this, and by gum, I'm going to make that happen. Right, right, right. But we're not good with gray. Uh-huh. But I think that, that that strictness, that rigidity to how things are supposed to be uh-huh. goes back to Victorian But don't England. you feel like life is about navigating the grays completely? Oh, yeah, life is. But we're, we're very black and white in this country, right. racially, too. What? <laughs> Oh man, good times. Um, good times. Good times. Yeah, and I think it just comes back to like, and and India didn't have we don't they don't have the the psychoanalysis. Someone was just telling me about um a f- guy who is clinically depressed that went to Africa mm-hmm. and went to this village, and apparently when someone's depressed or sad, the custom is the entire village throws a party for that person that lasts a full day. Oh, my God. That they bathe them in love and connectedness and care, and it just, and it's gone. And this guy who's always had depression problems, uh-huh. you know, medications, whatever, right. did this party and is like, I don't think I need meds. Right. I don't feel alone anymore. I don't feel I'm alone. And they asked him, well, what do you guys do in America? Oh, we sit in a room alone uh-huh. with a person. And tell them all of our problems. Uh-huh. And they're like, that's insane. <laughs> right. Why would you do that? Right. Because we're we're so steeped in the European ideas. Uh-huh. The European, this is right, this is wrong, so et cetera, et cetera. Here's something where I felt embarrassed. Okay. I go over there. And um, like I said, because that wound of apartheid is so fresh, but what I love about them is they put the issues on the table. Mm-hmm. They have this show called Late Night News with Luis Ogola. He's a big political comedian there. And it's I go over there, and, I, and I'm starting to interview him. They want me to sit down and talk to him for the documentary. And I'm like, hey, nice to meet you, Luis. I'm Hassan. Um, I hear you're South Africa's John Stewart. And he goes, I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> um, he's like, I don't like when Americans do that. Why does everything have to be? equated like that i'm louis ogola i'm south africa's louis ogola i'm not south africa's john stewart why does everything have to be looked through if i introduce you to a south african rapper a tswana musician why are you going to say this is the tswana justin bieber no he's a tswana singer that's what he is why is that a you know and i was like that that is the way americans look at the world and what i found to be like kind of it was sad. Like I felt a little embarrassed was that you would think with the internet 
it's a two-way street learning about each other is a two-way street but it's right. really a one-way street where we take our soft power our movies our music our pu- culture we send it across the world but how much of that do we absorb of theirs right you know so it's like they know everything like the comics there they'll have jokes about obama and then they'll have jokes about their own president president zuma you know like right and i'm like oh they're like yeah because we we know about the rest of the world and it's because um we're the world power uh-huh and do you know who dylan moran is uh-uh dylan moran do you ever have a show called black books uh-uh you saw shawn of the dead yes okay Whew. gotcha all right so um there was four people, right? Uh-huh. There was Simon Pegg, his yeah. ex-girlfriend, uh-huh. and then she had the two friends that hated Simon Pegg. Correct. One was, the, one was the woman that was in the British office. Yes. And then the other one was this kind of tall guy with a little bit of an Irish accent and glasses and black hair. Uh-huh. That's Dylan Moran. Okay. He's an Irish comedian. Fucking incredible. Okay. I saw him in New York years and years and years ago. And he said, said this thing, and he, he made a comparison of America to Rome. And... Which is always a dubious comparison. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's the most pretentious possible saying. It's always dubious to compare America to Rome. <laughs> no. But he just said that. It's true in the history of the world. Whatever country is the world power, uh-huh. the citizens of that country are completely unaware of the politics of that country. Huh. It's like, it just, you guys are the ones on top, so you don't care. Right. You get distracted. You know, he's like, TVs. That's your new vomitorium. Right, right. Wine and circus. Exactly. You're right. So it's like every country is indirectly affected in some way or directly affected by whatever the fuck is going on in the United States. Mm-hmm. But us, not so much. Right. We only give a shit if someone's trying to bomb us. Right. And that's kind of it. Yeah. It's like, they got bombs? We, we, well, no, 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 no. Right. No, 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 no. We don't know anything about North Korea. Uh-huh. That's why, who is it? I think it's Maz Jobrani uh-huh. has that bit about, like, that's why he's like, a lot of the people in this country are like, I don't just bomb the whole, the whole <laughs> bomb. bomb. Like, no, they're completely different countries, and they all have different places, uh-huh. and they all have different people and different beliefs and different religions, and I'll, I don't care. Bomb the whole, just the whole goddamn, the whole, <laughs> right, just to right. bomb the whole. And that's how people in this country see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It continued, what you were saying. Um, so one question that they asked me that they were like, they were like, what's your obsession? With being number one. Your guys, why is it? What's the obsession? Because they're like, they're, um, like Br- Brazil right now is the number three economy in the world. South Africa is, is rapidly, it's like growing and doing well as well. So they're like, but South Africa is the number one of the, of the continent of Africa. Oh, it's the beacon of hope of Africa. Yeah. You know, um, they were like, but why is there this obsession? Like, and I was like, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know. We're just, we're just so. Okay, I read this thing again. Why isn't it like just do well? Like China's doing very well. It's like, all right, we're doing well. That's great. Why? why? Uh, I hate to bring up this millennium millennials are yeah yeah yeah. yeah, thing yeah, again. yeah. Uh, I saw this guy said something, or I read it. He said something about like we figured out that self esteem was uh, linked to success, but we've created monsters. That's the way that he put it. He's like, we created self esteem monsters. Okay. He said what we should have been doing is saying, I love you, right? Uh-huh. You're important to me. But what we said is, no, you're the best. You're going to be the president. You're going to be a rock star. You're going to be a movie star. We're constantly telling our kids all the time, 
you're going to be the best possible thing you can be. Right. Instead of whatever you do is great because I love you. Right. 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 But he's like, but we got too crazy with it. Uh And now everybody is just obsessed with being the best possible thing they could possibly be. Right. But not everyone can do that. Right. Which is why everyone's fucking depressed. Right. 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 So instead of being like, I'm the best me and people love me and that's fucking great. It kind of was like a 70s idea that went into the 80s and then yuppieism and fucking Wall Street and Uh all that stuff. Like the, 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 the worker was gone. Factory worker. 1970s. Uh-huh. Right? Whenever you saw a movie, you saw a TV show, the most common job, someone was working in a factory somewhere. Right. Then in the 80s, suddenly everyone's in offices. Right. Right? Uh-huh. 90s, suddenly everyone's working for the internet. Uh, right, right. 2000s, people are developing websites. Right, right. 2010, people are developing apps. Yeah. So it's just kind of like we got more and more specific and specialized uh-huh. with what the hell it is that we're doing. But it's like the eighties where it was just like our self is everybody wanted to make a lot of money. For I love that trajectory. Of so it was like, it was like, like factory worker, you're off. Like, Oh man, put the hard hat down. 10 years later, it's an office like suit and tie. Like I'm going to the office. And then like 10 years later, it's like you work at a startup and there's like bouncy balls everywhere and ping pong tables. And then 10 years after that, it's like, well, I do an app and I'm in my bedroom. And then like 10 years after that, it's just like a dude in his bed, just fucking <laughs> coding. He doesn't even have arms anymore. He yeah. turns his arms into laptops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, right. But I just, I'm just saying that. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, yeah. I think that that self obsession really sure. came out of when we were kids. Sure. The '80s, Reagan. Yeah. All that shit. Get it. Get it. Get it forever. Right. Keep it. Keep it. Keep, keep it. it forever. Right. Um. So, um, I th- we come back here to the states, and then uh, we we filmed the last segment where I I I. I I brought one comedian from India back, and then one comedian comedian from South Africa back, and I'm like, you, who did you bring? I brought back Umpo Pops, so he uh, he's like a super talented uh, comedian from uh, Johannesburg, and he's kind of like the new young talented guy there. Um, and then uh, Aditi Mittal, who is um, she's one of only three female comedians in India, um, but she's like this great character. I'm sorry, the entire country of India. Uh, in, in terms of English speaking stand up comedians, she's one of three. Okay, yeah, and in, um, her character work is incredible. She she's on a sketch show there and her ability to do characters is great. Mm. But it was, like I said, it was one of those things. It was very interesting for me to to be in a country and see sometimes the characters, the act outs would go into different languages. And I didn't understand. Oh, wow. I, I didn't understand. Right. So it is like, isn't it crazy how Tamil movies do this, you know, or whatever. And she's doing like this great act out of like the way t- Tamil movies are but I speak Hindi I don't watch Tamil movies it's from this that's from the south of the country right but she's doing it and there's da 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 and everyone's like ah. right it made me realize two things number one there's still a music and rhythm to comedy oh yeah it's you can still like hear it um but language is such an important component of that so I bring them back here, and the two advisors for our project were Bill Cosby and Norman Lear. Oh, so upset. Now. I mean, I'm, I'm not upset. Continue. We're going to get into the meat of what I wanted to talk about. Meat. Let's do it. Okay. We go to Cosby's house. Fuck. You, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me just sit on that sentence for five seconds. We go to Cosby's house. 
Okay, continue. Okay. Continue. All right. It has a an incredible amount of resonance for me. For them, their legends are different people. They Cosby's a legend to them, but for Umpo, the first black comic in South Africa is a legend to him as well. The bravery and courage that that guy had to rise out of apartheid. So he he sees both of them. He's like I think Cosby's great. It's this duality that I that I thought was so interesting about international comedians. Right. They're like, I see how this person's a hero. And this person, you know, just like Americans were like, Martin Luther King Jr. is a hero. Mandela's a hero, too. We, you can acknowledge that. Right, right, maybe right. Maybe Dr. King has more resonance for us because we're from America or whatever. That happened here, right. Right, that happened here. So I'm shitting my pants. The garage doors are open. His one of his assistants just says, just, just, just go in. He doesn't lead me up. He's go, 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 go in. I'm at this man's house. We walk in. I look at, I go into his laundry room. That's what, as soon as you enter through the garage, I look at the walls as I'm walking upstairs. I'm to my brother, Russell, whom I slept with. It's there framed, you know, just all the albums are framed as I'm walking up the stairs. I mean, I see photos of him shaking dignitaries hands you know what i mean like just like i'm like oh this guy is america he's yeah. an american icon he's beyond just a, like a comedian go upstairs he's sitting there in his in like a den wearing a temple sweatshirt you know it's like legs are crossed and uh turns and looks at me and he goes what are you doing here and i'm like oh fuck so we begin <laughs> So we begin, Dr. Cosby. Oh, man. Dr. Cosby on Hassan Minaj. Okay, what do we do? Go downstairs. And I'm like, okay. Oh, God. Really? He didn't know? You know, it's it's open for interpretation because that was a running theme of I would would put my heart on the line. Dr. Cosby, this is what I feel. And then I would be shut down. (laughs) He goes down. We go down into his front yard i mean it's his house i mean you see the photos of enos it's like it's his house we go down he's there's these chairs uh there's these uh um, benches in the front uh, yard and he says put set, set the benches up so we set them up perpendicularly a 90 degree angle so what are you what are you guys doing set it up this way all we did was just flip them around same setup <laughs> so i was like okay we, we're sitting down with him though and he goes so you come to my house. You're here to interview me. You want to talk about comedy. Why do you do comedy? And I'm like, oh, fuck. So I'm sweating. And I'm like, okay, initiate stock response. That would sound, you know, like that would maybe impress him. Go, look, uh, I feel like stand-up comedy is like one of the purest art forms where you can express who you are. And he's like, stop it. He asks Aditi, why do you do comedy? It's like, well, I feel like it was a platform for me as a woman. Stop it. And Poe goes, well, when I was younger, people just thought I was funny. He reaches across, shakes his hand. I'm like, motherfucker. Why didn't I think of that? Oh, my God. Comes back to me. Tell me about the first time you did stand-up or whatever. I go, um, well, growing up, my like the house that I grew up in was very strict. So I started in college. I didn't have exposure to cable or comedy central any of that stuff i started my freshman year of college stop it don't make excuses don't blame your parents if you wanted to do something you were a teenager you could have done it don't make excuses turns to the second person what why when did you start comedy 
boom, goes through her story, goes through Impose story, comes back to me. When was the first time you did stand-up comedy? Blah, 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 goes through my story. Then he does a callback to the third guy's story. He keeps all three narratives running perfectly. And every time I would say, hey, I have this thing, da 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 he would immediately shut me down. So I was like, tell me about the first time you did stand-up comedy, Cosby. And he's like, Dr. Cosby, what you, why are you talking to me like this? And I'm like, did you call him Cosby? <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, tell me, tell me, Mr. Cosby. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, Dr. Cosby, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, my God. And um, he puts his arm on my leg, and he's just like, why are you sweating? What are you scared of? And I'm like, he's this close to my face. I'm like, fucking you. Did you say that? Yeah, I was like, you, you're Cosby. You're everything. You're like, you built the institution. That this is. And he's like, Dr. Cosby, what is wrong with you? And I'm just literally imploding inside. I'm like, if he tells me to quit right now, I could very well quit. I could just pack it all up and go back to Davis and be like, it was a fun ride. It was good while it lasted. This was, and I was just sweating. I was so nervous to be around the guy. And uh, anyways, uh, I was just like, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. And that's one of the big themes that I deal with in stand-up is that as we grow and evolve, fear comes into like what I do. You doubt yourself sometimes. Is this the right way to go? Should I try this? Should we? And we've talked about this, taking those chances on stage. You, I talked about it with you where you were like, you were like I want to talk about me, but I feel like if I share it, it's going to be too fucking sad. It's because of side note. It's because of white people. We're, yeah, we're gonna get back to this. It's not because of white people. I apologize, white people listening. We're gonna get back to this. Okay, I'm gonna go get ahead. back to this with you, Baron. Oh, this is fun. dude. Fuck. Okay, we're getting so. Fucking you got real. something on your right eyebrow. Yes, yes. I'm yes. I'm sweating. By the way, I, it's okay. very warm in here. I, all right. Well, you just had like this white thing. It was in your hair. Uh-huh. I haven't talking about it throughout the entire podcast. Is it gone now? Yeah, kind of. Wipe your no. Don't you got it? Don't put it back. You just put it back. But no, not, not now. No. Okay. Wipe it. Wipe okay. it. Wipe it. It's gone. It was in your hair. You moved it back. Then it was on your face. Now it's gone. I can okay. listen to you. Okay. <laughs> I've been listening to you okay. this whole time. But it's been extremely annoying. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <sighs> okay. <laughs> but. But. Cosby's in your face. Yeah. You're like, I'm afraid. Yeah. And, and, then, Go. He, and then he goes, what are you afraid of? Like, and I'm like. I, I said specifically, like when you take those chances on stage, you're, you're what we're doing when we take risks is, first of all, there's an alchemy of stand up. We are creating concepts and doing things that previously did not exist. And we have no idea if they're going to work or not. There's a huge level of vulnerability there. But then once we n- establish us being funny, you start doing it for a few years. You can there's certain notes that you can play and you know you're going to get the laughs and it's taking those chances, going that extra 10% beyond your reach to really get fucking great at this thing. But it's scary. It's scary. You've, you've created a name for yourself. You're Baron Vaughn. You crush when you get on stage. What if you take these chances and it's like, what the fuck is Baron doing? There's that risk. I feel that risk too. doesn't help that there's this thing called the internet. Sure. That YouTube sometimes comments. someone might write something about you and then someone's like, I just saw that guy fucking bomb. Sure. It's like, it was an open mic. Sure. Go ahead. Continue. Sure. Cosby goes up and he goes, all right, let me tell you the, the first the th- first time I go on stage, Greenwich Village, 1959, 1960. Um, I go up. Uh, it was a bringer show. I brought five of my friends from Philly. You know, and they're like, Cos, you're so funny, blah, blah, blah. Take them to the show. There's seven people there. I bomb. 
I get back in the car and everybody goes, Kaz, you were funnier in the car. That's his, that's his classic. <laughs> and I go, you were funnier in the car. That's and I, and, and I go, so in other words, Dr. Cosby, you were funnier off stage than you were on stage. And he looks at me and he's like, are you even listening to me? And I'm like, oh my, like, I can't, I can't do this man right. It's like my relationship with my father. And so I was like, oh God. And, every, what, what and the, are, the whole crew is just dying at dying. my expense. Okay. At my expense. You're like, okay, I was going to ask, was everybody laughing? Or are they yeah. scared? What else is happening? I have a great, I have a, I actually, the director just sent me a clip, just a 10 second clip of what happened. And he was like, this was the summary of your uh, relationship with Cosby. But he goes up and he tells a story about uh, the, the, the first time he bombed. And he goes, well, uh, right after I bombed, I kind of sat with it and it really ate me apart like dug deep inside of me and four hours later i rewrote i was just rewriting everything and i go how many times have you bombed in your in your life he goes uh that was the one time i bombed so that's chapter one of our discussion wow that's chapter one that was the one oh okay 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 because i've had a conversation with moshe kasher about this and i go do you still bomb and he goes look i haven't bombed hard in a long time but even when i'm not doing well i don't i bomb on my terms and therefore i do not bomb yeah yeah now is what was cosby referring to was he referring to that which is called a, being human and a professional and bom- not bombing on your own ter- uh, and bombing on your own terms or is he just alien and he literally did only bomb once I wouldn't doubt if it's the it's if it's what Moshe's saying because I've I I have read that exact sort of thing from Patrice O'Neill talking about the moment he stopped. I just wrote this down for something else. Comedy Central asked me like different comedians' advice that I liked, uh-huh. and I had read the interview with Patrice, and he said the moment something like the moment I stopped caring about bombing, yeah, is when I started to get good, and okay. it has to do with if you bomb on your own terms, then it doesn't exist. Bombing is an admission of defeat. So it's like if you bomb, and I know I do this for myself when I feel like I didn't do well, uh-huh. I sit in the feeling of that. Whereas I, there's more I could have done because especially I feel like when I bomb, I know I didn't take risks. I know that there's something that could have been done. Huh. But I resorted to doing the things that I believe work. So I'm like, and then that material doesn't work. The A material. The, right. This is in my special on my CD. I did it on Conan material. People right. are staring at me. And I'm like, this is even worse right. than before when I was trying new shit. Right. And I've had those moments. And, th- and it doesn't work is your theory. I've, I've been there before. And is your theory because it's like you're just hitting autopilot and the soul behind that, make, that made that stuff funny is no longer in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I go, ooh. Mm-hmm. You know, hit autopilot, do the good, do the A material, get the get get the big guns out. Oh wow, they are still not dead. <laughs> yeah, I just shot all this stuff. Yeah, and now I'm like, well, I guess I don't have any power. Uh huh. I guess I don't have anything to say. Yeah, and I guess I'm not funny. See you next time. <laughs> but I do. I have had those moments, and it's so freeing when I accept the challenge. Mm-hmm. When I don't put that pressure on myself to kill. Yes. When I go up there and I talk about whatever the hell I'm going to talk about, I and if it's on my terms, even if I didn't do well, it doesn't bother me at all. 
Yeah. I get off the stage. I'm like, I did exactly what I wanted to do. And I don't feel bad. I just feel like they weren't with me or I could have done this better. But it, it, it feels inspiring. It doesn't feel like defeat. It doesn't feel like this is the stuff I know works and that didn't work. Okay. But anyway, continue. I go – I ask them the question. I go, the first time you did Ed Sullivan, say six, 1961. Jesus. Okay. Um, and I was thinking about the things that we go through. You just did your half hour. You know, we're doing TV spots and stuff like that, or these Conan's Fallon's, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, was there fear? Was there doubt? Or these whispers of you need to do well. You need to crush. And what's funny is that his first time on Sullivan, the joke that he told about um, the conversation between Noah and God. He has a three and a half minute joke about Noah and God. And right. Noah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's God. Uh, right. Uh, that's what got him cast on I Spy. Wow. <laughs> but anyways. And I see, I've read stuff with Pryor talking about doing Sullivan. He's like, that's literally the first time I ever said any of that shit. It's a different world. It was, yeah. Now we have to, the submission and the, 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 the thing, and we're making TV sets all of the time. Right, right. And with that comes less risk. Yeah. But they um, were just taking risks literally on TV. There wasn't stand-up on TV. So I go, fear, doubt, whatever. And he was just like, no, this is your job. This is your job. The bus driver is not afraid he's going to crash the bus. The plane pilot is not afraid of crashing the plane. He does not feel that. This is your job. Just treat it like your job. If you're a chef, do not think that you're going to cut your finger off. That's not one of your thoughts. This is your job. Treat it like your job. And then um, I go, look, I mean, 1961, I didn't say this, but in my mind, I was like, there was some deep-rooted shit going on in this country, racial tension-wise. Come on, man. People, Dr. King was still alive. You know, like the, the the struggle was happening and you're up there suited and booted being just like, remember the first time you threw a snowball? Like, you know what I mean? They're just like this almost not acknowledgement of that. But I go, well, what about all those barriers? What, didn't you ever feel misunderstood? And he's like, he grabbed me and he uh, put his face on my face and he just said, make them understand. The basis of your job as a comedian is to make them understand. And if you're not, that's on you. Chapter two of our discussion. How much of that is our, is our, our fault? Is us to own? Is there such thing as a bad audience? Because I asked him, is there such thing as a bad audience? And he goes, no, you failed to make them understand. Because after a recent night that I had at the comedy store, I truly believe there was no way for them to understand anything <laughs> at one forty-five in the morning. <laughs> oh, let's begin. This is what I wanted to talk about, man. These are things that are stirring around in the brain of mine. Yeah, I always feel like I used to use this word dismantle a lot when I started a comedy. I was obsessed with my openers. I was obsessed with, I need to dismantle them. That was the sentence I would say to myself. Okay. I don't know that I spoke it out loud to many people, okay. but it was about, I have to break them to put them back to, together. That's what I remember thinking. 
And I also used to want to always go early in the show because I only had five minutes of material. If that, I would talk for five minutes. Don't know if it was material. Uh-huh. But I was like, I only had the things I was talking about. Uh-huh. And if anyone talked about anything having to do with anything else that I talked about, uh-huh. it was going to burn my material. Suddenly, I'm the second person talking about this thing. Right. But I'm – and I also was like, I also don't have anything that's the most original. Uh-huh. Well, oh, man, I'm trying to remember some of my earlier jokes. It was – one of my first earlier jokes was about, was about expectations, about that I'm a black comedian, and you guys expect me to sound and act a certain way. Yes. And I realized it doesn't matter what I say, you guys are going to act like I'm saying the other thing. Like, I could be like, wow, the stock market has been erratic lately, (laughs) and you guys are going to hear, if I was a black man, nigga, 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 (laughs) nigga, 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 that was my fucking first bit. Uh But it undid them Uh in a way that I could continue out my my joke about Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Right, right. Um, And I think that's all I had. Slavery the Musical. I used to do a thing called Slavery the Musical Uh that I still have some friends that remember that and they constantly quote it to me uh-huh. all the time um and so it's like i was always like i have to dismantle because i guess i am obsessed with what i believe is their expectation that there's so much comedy there's so many places to view it that's why i say that like tv comedy is tv comedy what you see in the club is not the same as what you see on the television. Yes. But since we are now, as opposed to a Cosby or a Pryor or a Woody Allen or a George Carlin, where every comedian in the fucking world wasn't on TV all the time, right? we now have a situation where everyone's putting out media of themselves all the time. So we're constantly having to – So now, and we've grown up with that. We've grown up with the TV set. Someone gave me as a present um, Johnny Carson sets. It was like a DVD, two discs of all these different comedians doing sets on Johnny Carson. And it's fascinating to watch the different eras. It's fascinating to see the beginning of Johnny Carson in the 70s as opposed to Roseanne Barr being on Johnny Carson, you know, like uh-huh. in the late 80s right. or whenever the heck she was on. Right. What she did is very way more polished and TV, like, boom, she was ready for that fucking moment. Everyone knew you get on Johnny, that's it. She was prepared. Uh-huh. Stephen Wright, different story. Stephen Wright has jokes that, luckily, he has, he's a joke teller. Uh-huh. And he was prepared for that moment because that's just the act that he does. Right. But then it became, there was no such thing as a late night set. Now when a comedian says a late night set, that's shorthand. And we all know what the fuck it means. Uh-huh. Oh, I got to work in this late? We know. Four and a half minutes, hard jokes, clean autobiographical, whatever the fuck you think that means. Uh But it's usually those are the words that are used. So now that we've grown up with this TV set, it has changed stand-up on the whole. I think we're going back towards the other way. I think that because we have comedians like Louis C.K. and like Bill Burr, Mm -hmm. um, who I personally think are, regardless of what you think about them as comedians, because not everyone agrees, right. I think that they're the most influential comedians around right now. I, I put Mark Maron up there as well. Uh-huh. Um, they're the most influential comedians working. Cat Williams might be up there as well. Interesting. Um, they're putting out a lot of product. They're all incredibly organic. 
uh-huh. and what they do on stage. Yes. And because they're putting out this product and they're not aiming towards a TV set, they're aiming towards building an hour. They're aiming towards a higher goal than to get a couple jokes on a late night show. Right. They're influencing this whole generation of comedians under them. And I think that there's a lot more people doing comedy for comedy's sake. Than Which is great. With their work, yeah. But that's great. It is It is great. But I'm just saying that, like, the TV set, I think we're going, we're, so we're at this other swing. We're going back the other way uh-huh. to, oh, we're going back this other way to, like, people are taking risks. And trying to do interesting things instead of they just instead of just wanting to be on TV. Yeah. Now but, this this theme of being understood, I mm-hmm. want to get back to that. Yeah. Well, still, I guess I just mean to say have, that. Do you still have that fear of being misunderstood? Yeah, because I guess the thing is, what, when I what I what I mean with all this TV talk is the audience has been watching all this the entire time. The audience has an expectation of comedy. I think more of an expectation of comedy than any audience ever before. Uh-huh. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, uh, "Don't make fun of me." Don't put this in your act. Right. You right. know, oh, I don't want to sit in front. Don't want to get made fun of. Right. Everybody has these tropes that they yeah. think stand-up is. Yeah. But where did those come from? You know, it came from the 80s. It came from the boom where suddenly there was TV, all the, the comedy and stand-up on television all the time. And all these different comedians that became household names. Right. Um, so I get obsessed with what I think they want to see, especially because I'm a black man. I'm supposed to because I'm because Def Jam happened and now that's supposed to be what I sound like. Uh-huh. But I'm the post Def Jam generation. Sure. I want I'm I'm I think my class of comedians, my class of black comedians, right, are the first class that didn't have to do urban rooms. Didn't have to do it. You Hannibal Eric like Hannibal did them. Uh-huh. Cuz Hannibal's from Chicago. Uh-huh. Eric I don't know. Uh-huh. But like we didn't have to do it. That wasn't the only place to get didn't stage Marina, didn't Marina time. do them as well? Yeah, Marina did them. Yeah. So it's like when I think of all the black comedians that I know, the people that are like at my experience level, a lot of them never did black rooms. Wow. And then a lot of people who are just a little bit more than me, I'm talking like 14, 15 years, of course they did it. That's the only place they could get stage time. Right. That's where they had to go uh-huh. to get stage time yeah. and to hone their voice and their fucking right material. Right. So I, I performed in black rooms, but I, I didn't just keep going back. Like that was the only place that I could get up. I was in the alt scene, but it wasn't because I fucking pursued it, which is now a thing. Everyone's like, oh, I got to get on that show. It's like sure. those are the people that booked me. That's where I went there. Right, right. I met. I ran into Nick Kroll at an audition. Uh-huh. I said, oh, hey, I've heard about your show. Can I do your show? And he's like, yeah, come on down. Next thing you know, I'm doing all those fucking shows. Right, right. right. So I think it's like I get obsessed with the expectations I believe the audience has of me that have nothing to do with me. Okay. Right? This kind of brings back the Superman in a way. Uh-huh. So Benari, who is a guest on this podcast. Can I, can I offer just a, a quick analysis, though? Go ahead. This this is a, this assessment mm-hmm. of the audience whether it's right or wrong mm-hmm. it's in my way i know that it's in your way and you're not leading exactly you're first observing and reacting where i feel like there's got to be a lot when i've seen you firing on all cylinders you are leading that fucking room and you know what or maybe you're you're deceiving me i don't know and maybe the I times i've this. seen you go into transcend super saiyan baron mode <laughs> 
is when you're fucking leading. I maybe I should do this as an uh, as an experiment. What I do, I will usually watch the entire show before I go up. Huh. Okay. The more of the show I watch, mm-hmm. the less I want to go on stage. Yeah. The more of the show. Yeah, I've noticed that sometimes when we hang out. Destroying. Uh-huh. There was some show at at, at uh, Lubitsch, uh-huh. Rob O'Reilly put together, uh-huh. and it was a good lineup. And Rory Scovel was first. Uh-huh. Kumail went after Rory, and then I was after Kumail. Uh-huh. And I wanted to be first. I was like, I do not want to follow Rory, and I do not want to follow Kumail. Uh-huh. They're too fucking good. Uh-huh. I don't. I wanted to fucking take some risks and do some shit, and they're gonna fucking destroy, and then I'm gonna have to destroy, or uh-huh. I look like a fucking fool. So I got in my fucking head about it, and I swear to you, I went on stage after Kumail, just fucking killed, of course. And I go on stage, and his, here's the first but thing I did. But isn't that exciting for you, though? But here's well, what I did, and okay. this, this shows you my attitude. Okay. And I know that I'm wrong. I know that I'm wrong. This okay. is the first thing I did. I went, <sighs> a fucking huge, defeated sigh into the microphone. Uh-huh. I dropped the energy out of the room. Uh-huh. And I didn't need to do that, but I did it. Right. The best sets I've had as of late are when I'm running late to the show. Uh-huh. I have no chance to prepare. Uh-huh. I don't see any of the show. You pull a James Adomian. I fucking walk in, and they're like, "Dude, you're up right now." I walk in, they're saying my name. I go on stage, and I'm fucking in it. That's those are the best sets I've had. Because you're as present as you can possibly. I'm present. I'm not overthinking it. I will sit there and I will point out. I will pinpoint and obsess about the people I am sure are going to hate me. I look at them and I'm like, that person is not going to enjoy. And I I look at them. And I watch them. For the rest, for the rest of the show, I'm trying to see what, what does that one person need. I, I forget everything. Well, that guy right there, that table sitting next to that woman, he is not enjoying this. Okay, he just laughed at a joke about uh, teddy bears. Okay, now I know he likes teddy bears. Oh, he stopped laughing before the joke was over. Okay, he doesn't like teddy bears anymore. Fuck, that's what I'll do. <laughs> so, but you're right. I'm giving my power away. Let's go back to the Cosby story. So. I'm shitting my pants before going there. He's this legend, and there's certain comics that are fall into t- two camps. Presently, I think there's the the comics that are like the, that are like he's the goat. It's everything to me. What he did is amazing. He's still the greatest of all time. What he did transcended comedy. I would aspire to one day. You said the goat, like the greatest of all time. Yeah, the Earl the Goat, Man of Goat. Sure. Okay, you made a basketball reference. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the greatest of all time. Blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Then there's certain people that are just like, what's up, man? The dude didn't address being black. Like, what's up? Da, 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 da. Like, oh, he's a sellout. He's Uncle Tom. Blah, blah. I've heard that argument. Too. Yes. Yes. Okay. Aditi's telling the story about how she's scared because that fear is such a big thing for me. It's something that I've been talking about and becoming fearless has been my biggest goal in stand up in the choices that I make in terms of my career and the choices that I make on stage. Fearlessness. And so. I'm bringing up that theme. Cosby, clearly, I can just tell every time I try, tell me about doubt. Tell me about this. Tell me about, he's like, just Dikembe Mutombo, rejecting it. The fucking weird commercial. No, 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 no. Yeah, and so Aditi goes, this is my fear. And the country that I'm from, there's all this cultural stigma about being a woman on stage, being loud, crass, and imitating men. It's a huge non-feminine thing to do to be a woman but then almost masculate yourself like be a man up there and she's like my mom sometimes says like 
how are you going to find a man? How are you going to like fit into this structure of fabric that's in this country, these expectations of you? And Cosby, once again, was like, what? Like, you're funny, you're making money, you're successful, you're smart. What's the issue here? Don't make excuses. A call back to, he's like, don't make excuses like he did with his parents. He called back something from 90 minutes ago. Once again, brilliant. He goes, don't make excuses. You're better than that. See, here's the thing. People always used to criticize me, you know, and sometimes I'll see, you know, I'll see Eddie Griffin on stage. I'm like, Cosby's aware of Eddie Griffin? This is fucking blowing my mind. And he's like, Eddie's up there, talented guy. And he goes, fuck this, fuck this, motherfucker. And I'm losing my mind. Bill Cosby's saying the F word. Right, right. And he's like, fuck this, blah, 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 F this and be this. And, and I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, you're better than that. I have no issue with the language. Richard used bad language all the time. But my thing is, is that you're better than that. You don't need to use it. And I was looking at him and he genuinely meant it. It wasn't like him being like, that's wrong. Drugs are bad. Don't do it, kids. He mean he was like saying it from his heart. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he was able to surpass any of the barriers that were put upon his people because he was just bigger and better than them. He always was better than the expectation society put upon him and put upon blacks. He just was. Before we had a black president, we had a black father that was America's father. Remember the Time magazine cover? Him like this, and it says, America's dad. You kidding me? One could argue that's, that's just as big as maybe a black president, that all of America could be like, that's my dad. And also there was always such homage like, I mean, such homage given to, like, black institutions on the show in subtle ways. Like, oh, we're going to go to Morehouse. We're going to go to Spelman. It wasn't, like, a made of a big deal. Yeah. It's just, like, historically black colleges, yeah. black celebrity. He had freaking Stevie Wonder and Ossie Davis and Lena Horne and, you know, uh, this, all these Roscoe Lee Brown. Yeah. All these incredible black actors but and the figures. criticism of his, him is that he, he was not black. And I wanted to share the story with you because you sometimes – have dealt with that issue of being not black. And right. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? His, his kids went to HBSUs. Right. It's like, are you, are you kidding me? Right. You know what I mean? And Stevie wonder and all this, you couldn't be more black. What are you talking about? And he's from Philadelphia. Yeah. He went to temple. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, like, so to, to me, I, I really was like, holy shit, it just flipped the script for me. And I wanted to share it with you specifically because a big thing that I do sometimes is I'm like, there's the, I play the victim. I go, there's these expectations of me in Hollywood. There's these expectations of me in, in comedy or whatever that I, I can't surpass these things. Why am I already manifesting that by saying it? I do the same thing. That's my biggest problem. I, probably, I think it is my best problem. When I say I'm obsessed with these things in my way, that's exactly what it is. I, I won't say I'm playing the victim because I maybe because I'm afraid to admit but that's maybe what I've been doing the entire time. Why am I talking like Woody Allen right now? <laughs> Continue what you're saying. I see. And my comment, my opinion on Cosby is that his opinion, his comment on race is the fact that he doesn't bring it up. That he doesn't need to. You know, that's why I see Pryor and Cosby as opposite sides of the coin. Uh-huh. R- Richard's going to put it right in your. He put it right in people's faces. Uh-huh. But Cosby didn't talk. Well, was about Richard it at all. playing the victim? That's no, I don't think so. Richard wasn't. I don't think Richard was ever playing the victim. I think that what he was trying to do was because, you know, going to Berkeley 
and getting involved with the counterculture, that's where he started to see what it meant to be a black man in America. And the things that were, I don't think that he, he never portrayed it as I am going to shrink from these ideas as much as these ideas exist and I'm just calling them out. And I think it was more not him saying what isn't wrong and what isn't wrong. Yeah. It's just it was what just is. what is. This is what is. And he's just saying they, they got cops out here that will choke a brother out. Right, right. He's not saying that like I'm afraid of it. He's just saying this thing's happened. He's like, oh, we broke him. Can we break one? Right. right. Let's look at the rule book. Yep. You can break one. You know, right. that, that was right. his act. Right. The only thing that he was ever afraid of is women. That's basically it. Yeah. His fucking craziness with women. But he admitted he was wrong about shit all the time. He was so vulnerable and just being like, I fucked up. Uh-huh. I fucked this up. Uh-huh. I didn't want that to happen. I fucked that up. Uh-huh. Come with me. That's basically right. it. Right. But but Cosby was not speaking about any of it. Uh-huh. He didn't have to. Uh-huh. You know. you Are you looking at me? You know I'm black. I don't have to say anything about right. it. Right. So then he just talked. He's like, let's talk about everything that has nothing to do with that. And then you will see how similarly we are. Uh-huh. And you weren't even thinking about it. Both, I think both were necessary, though. I think both are necessary. Exactly. Um, he te- so before we left, he told a story about two things. One, so we, we, we finish on this note of fear and these things being in our own way and mm-hmm. playing the victim. But then he, one thing that was like inspire, so inspiring and life-changing was you, you see the love of the game in his eyes. He fucking loves comedy. That's why he's aware of Eddie Griffin. Yeah. We always think that. We always think that like loves Think comedy. about how aware you are of every comedian around you. Yeah. And it's like we think that like those guys that we look up to have no idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Of course they do. Yeah. They're fucking comedians. Yeah. That's why people in San Francisco like Robin Williams keep showing up to shows and like, hey, you're really funny to a person who's been doing stand-up two years. He's aware. He's a comic. He wants to know. Yeah. Same with Cosby. Same with Dave Chappelle. But it's amazing that that love still is still there. And yeah. it's inspiring. So I go, I, for, I think, I, again, I said like about storytelling. Like I was like, just your ability and attention to detail. And he goes, storytelling. You want to know who one of the great storytellers was? Flip Wilson. True. True. Very true. And I didn't know that. And he's like, he was a far superior but everything than me. And I go, really? And it just remind me once again of these stories that we have with each other where maybe a guy will pop off and he's like, oh, you guys think I'm bad. No, this motherfucker, this dude was bad. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, um, he goes, uh, so he talked about the thing about make them understand. Um, I go like, you had to, I, I know you've had this tremendously successful career, but you've had to have moments where you were trying to lead and just these institutional things were stopping you. I want to make this show. The network says, no, like, how did, how do you deal with that? And he's just like, well, I'll, I'll tell you something that I saw in Richard. I was at the improv one night, Richard Pryor's on stage. He's bombing for 14 straight minutes, but he's owning it. And the whole time, he's just laying pieces of the story out. And he keeps digging himself further and further and further. He couldn't have alienated them anymore. It was a very ugly, nasty story. But after laying out all the pieces at 1459, as soon as the clock struck 15 minutes, Bam, he turned it around, and he's like, I had never seen in my life a person turn around a crowd like that to go from that negative to roaring. And Mm. he was like, that's when I realized he was one of the best people at making people understand. 
he, I can't tell you how many times Cosby said, make them understand during that meeting. Wait, what, what does he mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, no. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that was, that was, that was really great. And it was really cool to see, you know, cause I saw, I mean, Ra was so influential to me. I mean, the last I heard of it was just like, yeah, him talking down to Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy being like, fuck you, you know? And then Eddie calling Richard and being like, they pay you. All right, they laugh that bit. Tell him to suck my dick. Tell, yeah, have a tell, coke and smile. Tell have him to a coke and smile. Yeah, exactly. My dick. Yeah, you cannot say filth, <laughs> long filth, filth. Yeah, yeah, on the TV. Yeah, yeah, I always was curious about how much Eddie Murphy misrepresented Cosby. Yeah, because he's like Cosby called me. Uh huh. I really doubt that. I really doubt that Cosby called him. I wouldn't doubt if they met up. Uh-huh. I wouldn't doubt if they just ran into each other, uh-huh. but it would also that shows how much Cosby cares. If he did call, okay, this kid is doing all this shit. I need to call him. Uh-huh. No, no, no. The man, um, he cares. Cosby cares, man. <laughs> like, yeah, he didn't have to do that. He did it because he was like, this. What you guys are doing is good work, and he cares, man. It was life changing, man. So. The uh, last thing that I wanted to ask you, because you grew up, um, television was such a big part of your life. We sit down with Norman Lear, and I wanted to bring up this this theme of fear and doubt with him. Mm-hmm. As a producer and writer. One of the greatest of all time. Uh, great, yeah, greatest of all time. But with stand-up, we get to say what we want. There's there's still no barrier. There's, not, there's no network notes for what you're going to do at Holy Fuck next week. You get to do what you want to do. Maybe if you do a Conan set, maybe if you do other things, there's institutionalized things that prevent you from maybe doing everything you want to do. But with a show, and you work hand-in-hand with networks, yes, there is. They did All in the Family three times. It was shot down three times. They shot it three times Mm. to get it on air. I hadn't seen it. I had just seen The Jeffersons. Mm. I go back and I watch All in the Family and The Jeffersons and stuff. Sanford and Son? Sanford and Son. I was like... This is edgier than stuff that's on air now. Now, he's 90-something. So um, kind of what his goals are and the people that he influences closely, he influences Matt Parker and Trey Stone very closely. Like He deals with the best of the best. So he doesn't deal with a lot of the stuff that we go out for. It's just kind of like soulless, flat. There's no substance to it. Why, why is that? How could something in the 70s be so real? I know why. It's the exact situation you talk about when you were in South Africa. Right. And you're like, these issues are fresh. They're dealing with it. They can just put this on the table. 70s America, we're talking Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We're talking Nixon. Uh-huh. We're talking you know, transitioning into Carter and uh-huh. a fucking horrendous uh, recession. Uh-huh. Um, Bernari, my writing partner, obsessed with Superman, as I said before. Speaking of Richard Pryor, uh-huh. Superman 3. Three. Right, he's in it, yeah. Superman 3. You don't see Superman for 20 minutes into the movie. It's all about Richard Pryor. <laughs> right. And that scene, that opening scene of Superman 3, Richard Pryor is standing in an unemployment line. This is 70, this is Carter's America, right? Uh-huh. And it is deep. It's a deep fucking scene uh-huh. that like he can't, he, you know, it's just like, that's the America that we had. So shows like Sanford and son, all in the family and the Jeffersons 
um, were dealing with the issues that were happening at the time uh -huh. in this really fresh way. Right. That because it was still early sitcom in a way, uh, especially early live sitcom, he Norman Lear redefined the sitcom from what it was before. Uh -huh. He took it from the Lucille Ball, Jackie Gleason, Dick Van Dyke era into this new fucking, whoa, sitcoms can be, whoa, he did it, uh -huh. right? He did that. I would put, throw, I already mentioned Roseanne, I would throw out Roseanne as the sitcom after that. That was the only other sitcom I saw dealing with things in the way that, because like they would, local, like whatever was happening in the news, they domesticated it. And you saw how her family and everyone around them were dealing with these things. Right. And it is a different era, again, because networks weren't all owned by corporations yet. That's 80s uh -huh. era, baby. Uh-huh. That's that I mean, GE owned NBC forever. But like the other stations weren't owned yet. And it wasn't until sort of the 70s and post Vietnam when we started becoming obsessed with oil. Right. OPEC. Right. That certain motherfuckers, uh, corporations that wanted that, that were in what that. What a great callback to what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast. There you go. Right. So it's like um, suddenly the news had to reflect the opinions of those corporations. Uh -huh. They couldn't just put something in their faces. But I was watching the Jeffersons and all in the family, and I was like, they would throw so many red flags on some of these episodes. Yeah. And this is before that. Yeah. This is before they started kind of, no, we got to make everything nicer and duller. Yeah. yeah. And homogenize. That, we have to homogenize it. Yeah. And that kind of started to happen in, in the 80s. And there's still a lot of shows that are edgy and great and, and, and original that did that. But those shows were super edgy because it was – they – people – those shows were edgy to the point that people were like, let's not – you know, people who had the money were like, let's not let anyone do that right. again. Right. <laughs> Essentially. Right. How funny is Red Fox? fantastically funny one of the funniest men of all time you know i'll quote chris rock couldn't tell you one joke but he was one of the funniest men of all time crying i was crying watching richard pryor was a writer on that yeah as well as i think flip wilson was too really that's interesting because wasn't i thought he was hosting his show the flip wilson show um i am unclear on the chronology of it uh -huh. the flip wilson show may have been after that right or at the same time, but he still could have been working on both uh -huh. at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was everything that I wanted to talk about, man. We did it. It's fucking... God damn it. I'm supposed to be inspired by this conversation, and I am. But the fear is there. There's the voice <laughs> in my head that's just going, really, Baron? What are you going to do? change yourself tomorrow stop if you can't stop with this nonsense hey baron if you can't change yourself in five hours <laughs> it's not even worth trying it's, bro it's not gonna happen hassan <sighs> always great man i love these convos good and uh, thank you for making me understand there we go If you're a comedy nerd and you're a comedian, um, then you may feel really inspired right now. And uh, that's a good feeling to have. I feel inspired from that conversation, and I'm going to try to take that forward with me.
try to uh, stand up to my own fear and beat that bitch down. Just like that that scene in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, where uh, finally the demon that Bruce Lee has been fighting shows up and he's going to take Brandon Lee and he fights him down and, uh, and then he hits him in the head with nunchucks and then everything's fine. Of course... As we all know, Bruce Lee and Brandon Lee died, but that's beside the point. The point is you got to fight your own demons, and that's what I'm going to do. All right, guys. Uh, thanks to Well Done for letting me use his music a lot. And make sure to go check him out on iTunes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Blah, 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 yakety schmackety. Talk to you guys later. Mm-hmm.